It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I am here with the creator of The Good Place, the co-creator of Parks and Rec, uh, writer for The Office. Basically, Michael Schur has been making TV that makes people better people for a very long time. Now he has written a book called How to Be Perfect. Um, thank you so much for being here today and explaining to us how to be perfect. Welcome, Michael. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So uh, you make TV that makes people better people, um, and that is not something that I would think to attribute to anything other than, I don't know, PBS, like somebody that has <laughs> the direct mandate to make children better and more empathetic. But if you sat down and just just binge watched all of The Good Place and then binge watched all of Parks and Rec, like you're you're going to come out of that viewing with a little more empathy and a little more nuance as to how you handle the questions of ethics and morality. So I guess my, my first question to you is, how long have you been thinking about this stuff? And have you been, have you been quietly trying to indoctrinate us into being better people for decades? <laughs> yes, that's, it's all part of my master plan. You, you've caught make me. Make everyone nicer. That's yeah, right. Yeah, your secret evil plot to make nicer. Got it. <laughs> I, I have been thinking about this stuff for a long time. I, I realized at some point when I was working on The Good Place, that this has always been a part of uh, my own, whatever you want to call it, constitution, brain, soul. I, I've been telling people, and it's true that when I was like in kindergarten, if the teacher said, okay, everybody line up, I would immediately get into line and then look around at all of the kids who hadn't gotten into line. And I would think, what is wrong with you? The teacher just told us we were supposed to get in line. Like I, I've always been a rule follower of, of the highest order. And I, what has happened is that over the course of my life, like everybody else, I've gotten into situations where I didn't know what to do because the rules were not as clear as a kindergarten teacher telling you to line up. God, and I loved those, those clear rules when I was oh a my kid. God. I oh, loved it's the them. best. Yes, of course. That's mm. all we want, right? We want someone oh, just nice. Just tell me what to do. And kind. Tell me how to be good. Right. That's right. And so when I would encounter those grayer moments, as we all do, of course, I, I found myself longing for some kind of structure or vocabulary or information that would help me make a good decision. And, you know, the, re the end result of that was both the show, The Good Place, and now this book, which is sort of my understanding of these big, you know, juicy theories about how to be good people. So I mean, one of my favorite things about The Good Place is, I, so I'm in, I was an English major, um, which As is was I. philosophy. Okay. All right. So it's philosophy major adjacent, but not quite as in-depth as, as those kids went. But my favorite thing about The Good Place was that it, it, it actually, it, it holds up. Like, it, it, like you, could, you could teach it in a grad class. It, it, it is actually explaining the concepts of philosophy that guide our moral and ethical decisions. Um, are yeah. there any that you delved into as you were writing that show that made it into this book as particularly helpful as tools to guide us as we answer these questions? 
Well, if you're right, and it does hold up, a lot of that is due to the work of Todd May, uh, who is a professor who we contacted early on to help us understand, you know, what the hell any philosopher was ever talking about. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming and- <laughs> it holds up because people who get it tell me that it holds up, not because I, I understand these things. <laughs> right. Yes, I, I think it I think it does hold up. It also we also contacted a woman named Pamela Hieronymi who taught at UCLA. Like we had very we had official, you know, professionals helping us in the same way that if you were writing a show set in a hospital, you would need a couple ER surgeons to help you understand right. the medicine and stuff. Um, but I, I think that where I land ultimately is that all of the people that we studied for the show and that I wrote about in the book have something to offer. Like they, there is no one theory that I think is the answer with a capital A. I think that all of the schools of thought that we sort of delved into on the show and that I wrote about in the book have have ideas that are interesting and at different moments in your life whether you're contemplating something enormous and and worldwide like how to distribute vaccines or something tiny and personal like a little argument you get into um you know at a at a jamba juice with someone you've never met before there will be someone who has written something that will help you negotiate that moment and I, that's what I think is so wonderful about philosophy as a discipline is that you can, Derek Parfit, who is a contemporary philosopher, described these schools of thought, these different ethical theories as scaling the same mountain from three different sides of the cliff face, you know, like they're all, they're all aiming at the same thing. They're just coming at it from a different angle. So, so let's start with how, how we approach ethical questions. And I want to start the same way that you do in your book, which is um, with the question, should I punch my friend in the face for no reason? <laughs> yeah. Now, I actually, like, I have a hard time thinking, okay, what is my thought process on this? Because the answer is an obvious no. My friend hasn't done anything. Like, for no reason is part of the question. Mm-hmm. But, but what, what mental process are we actually performing when we decide every day, all day, not to punch the people we love for absolutely no reason. <laughs> so, yeah, the book is organized. Each chapter is sort of a different question that is, um, you know, pretty mundane and pretty straightforward. It's not these huge, you know, overarching, gigantic moral questions. They're small things like that. The reason I started with that question is because that chapter deals with Aristotle. And Aristotle's whole point was that we're all born with the ability to achieve what he calls virtue, we all have it in us somewhere. We have what I call starter kits that are like, you know, when you're a kid that, you know, you, you know, you're supposed to be generous and you're supposed to be kind yeah. and you're all those sorts of things. So your gut tells you if the question is, should I punch my friend in the face for no reason? Your gut tells you, no, of course you shouldn't. That's absurd. But then in order to really learn why that's bad, you need to develop that virtue that you were born with through trial and error and practice and habit over the course of your entire life. So Aristotle, for example, would say there is some amount of anger that's actually appropriate. Like you're supposed to get angry sometimes. You're supposed to get angry at the right people for the right reasons and the right amount. And the question is, what is the right amount? What are the right reasons? Who are the right people? And that is the thing that takes habituation. It takes the the constant practicing and kind of checking in and uh, and assessing whether or not you're doing a good job as you get closer it and closer like to that sort of dead spot. Yeah, punch people occasionally and see how it feels. Trial and error. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after that, I think I would err on the side of not punching them and then seeing okay. how that feels. And I I think that it's probably the rare situation when it's appropriate to punch someone in the face. And Nazis, it's certainly et cetera. 
exactly. Like if there's a, if someone is, you know, if a child is getting um, bullied or something on the playground and you have made attempts to stop the bully from doing so, then maybe physical force would be warranted. But the whole point is that you won't know what that right moment is, what the right reasons are, what the right situation is, unless you're constantly thinking about whether this is the right situation. So it's really about Aristotle's thing is really about like um, constantly checking in, constantly interrogating yourself and asking yourself the question of whether this is whether what you're doing is the right thing to do. Has the last two years just been like a master class in philosophy when none of us got the textbooks? It feels like <laughs> e like every day I am confronted with a, a railroad uh, analogy. Like I have to, I have to decide whether to, you know, certainly kill the one person or possibly kill the 10 people. Yeah. Every single hour of every single day, we are making these calculations in the pandemic about what our own behavior does to affect those around us. This seems like a pretty good guidebook for how to get through that. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I, I sold this book almost exactly two years ago to the day. It was like January, I don't know, 29th of, la of 2020. And it was it became very hard not to make the entire book about the pandemic because it's very rare sure. that um, that there's one thing that everyone is going through at the same time. And it's a it's a wonderful I mean, it's a horror show, obviously, and the the death and destruction and anguish and misery caused by it is um, is unprecedented. But it also presents this incredible opportunity to do a sort of a diagnostic checkup on the ethics of the nation in which you live. And like, there are some places where I would say America has failed miserably in some places where we have succeeded to a greater or lesser degree, but it became very, very hard not to just make every chapter about, well, here's an example, the pandemic, like, you know, like we just, <laughs> we were constantly having these, these questions of how we should behave, what our responsibilities were, how we should treat other people. That's all that ethics really is. And so I, I had to restrain myself from just making every single chapter ha have something to do with the pandemic. Well, I mean, did did we have ethical dilemmas before the pandemic? They seem so wild at this point. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, my yeah. mom's life wasn't on the line when I was dealing with my ethical dilemmas of still enjoying Annie Hall in 2019. <laughs> yes, they do <laughs> seem they do seem pretty quaint, don't they? When you think back yes. to the questions, questions of our behavior before February or March of, of 2020 <laughs> seem like, oh, that's charming that we had the time to even think about that. <laughs> So, I mean, of course we did though, right? We all had, we were right. constantly, we're, from the moment you are born to the moment you die, you are confronted with any number of ethical dilemmas, whether you choose to think about them or not. And it's, um, it, you know, the fact that the pandemic has made us all contemplate the same ones doesn't change the fact that in addition to that, and this is why it's exhausting to care about your behavior, in addition to those, we're still we still have the same ones that we had before the pandemic. We still wonder whether right. we're allowed to enjoy the art or um, performances of of problematic people, and we still have to wonder whether it's okay to leave our shopping cart in the parking lot of the grocery store, or whether we're supposed to return it to the corral near the front of the entrance or whatever. So it's it's just we just have a whole new set of things that got sort of thrown onto our shoulders that we have to contemplate every single day now. I I do want to ask more specifically about the can we enjoy art made by terrible people because this is one of those ethical dilemmas that like it will it will stop a dinner party. 
Mm-hmm. And everybody has a different approach to it. Everybody has, you know, pr- pretty strong feelings about what they, I grandfather certain things in basically. I spend my time, like I live in the patriarchy. I am constantly critiquing it. I am constantly oppressed by it. It is, if something makes me laugh, I'm going to keep enjoying it. <laughs> I'm not going to spend any money on it though. Like this is how I do the little thing in my head. Like mm-hmm. I will still watch Annie Hall, but I will certainly not see a new Woody Allen movie. And I can't watch Manhattan because that movie was actually about his preying on the young women in his mm-hmm. life. So that one's off limits, even though it predates. So I've got all these little mental gymnastics in my head that as a feminist, I do in order to enjoy certain works of art and, and dismiss others what what philosophy would you suggest that I bring um, to bring some order to this thinking on this question? Like, help me out here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, that was the hardest chapter for me to write. And for the reasons you're discussing, which is like, this is not a up or down, yes or no sort of binary uh, question. There, there are the, the mental gymnastics that you're doing are the same ones we all do. And in fact, what I would say and what I sort of talk about in the book is that the prop, the only real fault that I think you can, the only, the only mistake you can make is either pretending that the things you love aren't the things you love, because I think that mm. that part of being alive on earth and being a person with, with multivaried interests and ideas and, and a complex and layered and interesting personality is that you have absorbed art in your life. You've watched movies that matter to you. You've listened to songs that matter to you. And I think that you can't just say like, well, that doesn't matter to me anymore. I don't care about that. That is not formative. When If it is, you get the, the only mistake is either doing that or ignoring the fact in, in at certain times that the person who made that art is problematic. You kind of have to keep both of those things in your head at the same time. And you need to yes. figure out where your line is, right? You need to draw a line and say, I accept this person, I can forgive this person, his or her sins, but I cannot forgive this person. And as soon as you draw that line, what's going to happen is some friend of yours is going to gleefully point out the contradiction in your life and say, how can you do that and not this? Or how can you root for this team, but not support that person? How can we be talking about Woody Allen when you're literally listening to Under My Thumb by the Rolling Stones? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Yes. And there, and, and it is, and it is inescapable. If you are a human being on earth, you have, uh, you listen to music or watch movies or TV shows or, or look at paintings by a, a person who is problematic in some way. So it's inescapable. The only question is Picasso. Sorry. Yes, exactly. Of course. <laughs> yes. Picasso and Eric Clapton. And I mean, I, I was like the biggest Eric Clapton fan in the world. And then you, oh, you yeah. grow up and you learn about Eric Clapton and some of the things he said. And now he's releasing, you know, good. anti-vaccine songs and stuff. And so what am I supposed to do? I can't pretend that his solo on Crossroads uh, isn't something that's right. really important to me. I could sing it note for note right now if you ask me to. So <laughs> I can what I can do, though, is I can say I can I can hold two things in my mind at the same time. That person and that music is important to me. And also the person who made it is problematic. And that doesn't seem super satisfying sometimes, right? It still seems right. troubling and we're still kind of taxed with that with that um, contradiction, but it's sort of the best we can do. There's no, there's no right answer here. So the other question that you tackle in the book that I think is sort of like, I don't know, 
the question <laughs> is uh, why, why bother being good when there are any consequences for being bad? And <laughs> I, I, I find I find myself um, I am I am militantly agnostic in as much as I am not religious. I do not I do not know what comes in the afterlife. I do not know whether there's a God. And frankly, neither does anybody else. That's it. OK, militant agnostic over here. Okay. When I talk to my friends who are religious, the, the, the thing that they cite is how troubling it is to not have that moral compass, whereas I feel like my moral compass is actually more secure because I am choosing to make good decisions without a, a threat of you know, eternal punishment or something that, that may or may not be real. Um, they feel like my moral compass is slipperier because I am not grounded in this idea of consequences for my bad actions. Who's right? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, I listen, I don't begrudge anyone uh, religion at all. I, I am a I am a whatever gets you through the day kind of person when it comes to this. Sure. I think that the mistake or the the um, the misconception on the part of some people who are a part of an organized religion is that exact idea that that their moral compass that the, the idea of reward or punishment in the afterlife is somehow a stronger motivating factor than just I have a moral compass as a human being on earth now today here. And I believe that if you care about ethics and you, you care about how you comport yourself and how you exist on earth, that there's, there is no difference between the, you know, if you have integrity as a human being, that there's, there really is no difference. In fact, it might be a stronger moral compass, frankly, because the certain organized religions have the idea that you can do essentially whatever you want, atone for those sins, and then you're fine. As opposed to yes, I did yeah, grow up Catholic. <laughs> right there, you go. So living living your life as a, a, a and and thinking that what matters is how you are now and the judgment that happens now from the people around you or the people who matter to you or who love you or who are your bosses or parents or whatever, that to me is just as strong, if not stronger, a motivating factor to be a good person as the concept of some eternal reward or punishment. I. I, I am, I would call myself agnostic as well. I, and the good place was explicitly sort of agnostic about right. one, about any particular religion. We made very sure right at the beginning of the first episode to say no one was right. The, it wasn't the Catholics were like 5% right. And the Jews were 5% right. And the Muslims were 5% right. And that this isn't a situation where one or another of the organized religions had the correct view of what happens after you die. And that we did that specifically because I wanted to say that what I think matters more than the idea of doing something for a reward or to avoid a punishment down the road somewhere in some netherworld is just how we act now, how, how we perform, how we behave on earth around other people. That to me is a much more important motivating factor um, than, than the idea that I'm doing this for eternity. Sometimes, okay, so it sounds like you're saying I'm right, which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> you're right. That's, what, that's, feel... that's clearly what you want to hear. So yes, you're right. <laughs> sometimes I feel like like knowledge can actually be a, a particular burden when we are living in very uncertain, trying times. Like I, it's it would be hard to go through the pandemic being a healthcare worker. Do you now having the knowledge of how to be perfect? Are you particularly concerned about the way we are living right now, just in the final minute that we have? <laughs> 
Yes, although I was concerned before the pandemic. Um, I, yeah. I, I think that, you know, if ethics is a thing that you care about, which it certainly is for me, it is almost impossible not to get discouraged all the time. Um, because yeah. the you a, a quick glance around a, a quick perusal of the newspaper will reveal people in extreme positions of power at the very top of the food chain in this country or really any country who not only don't seem to be ethical people but flaunt the very concept of ethics and it's working like that that's what's so discouraging <laughs> is that like they get to the top because they have decided that ethics is not a thing they have to care about and that can be really difficult to swallow. It can be really hard to think like, well, I'm I'm asserting that this thing really matters, that this is a really big, important part of, of being alive on earth. And the most powerful, highest status people are living in direct opposition to that very idea. Like that's not a it's, pleasant thing. It is to a tough moment encounter. to be in, but, yeah, but yeah. honestly, thank you. Thank you for writing a guide for us to get through it. The, the book is How to Be Perfect, Michael Schur, um, I can't wait to give this to everybody I know so that all of the people in my life are slightly better. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. This has been just delightful. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.